Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Jen Say is the global brand president at Levi Strauss & Company, where she's responsible for marketing, design, merchandising, and brand experience. Jen has been with the Levi Strauss Company for more than 20 years, holding a variety of leadership positions within the marketing, strategy, and e-commerce teams. In 2013, Jen became the global chief marketing officer for the Levi's brand, and in 2018 was appointed senior vice president and chief marketing officer, overseeing marketing for the company's portfolio of brands. Jen has been named one of Ad Age's Top 40 Marketers Under 40, one of Brand Innovator's Top 50 Women in Marketing, Billboard Magazine's Top 25 Most Powerful People in Music and Fashion, the receiver of the CMO Social Responsibility Award, and she was featured on Forbes's CMO Next List, 50 Chief Marketers Who Are Redefining the CMO Role. Jen has a very interesting backstory. As a child, Jen led an intense life of dedication, challenge, and competition. She won the U.S. National Gymnastics Championship title in 1986, less than one year after having suffered a devastating injury at the 1985 World Championships. As a result, the U.S. Olympic Committee named her Gymnastics Athlete of the Year. Jen retired after eight years on the national team and went on to study at Stanford University. In 2018, Jen released a memoir called Chalked Up, which became a New York Times ebook bestseller. This book detailed her triumphs and struggles within the world of competitive gymnastics. Jen's book led to her producing a Netflix documentary about the investigation and ultimate conviction of Larry Nasser and the decade-long abusive culture of of USA Gymnastics. This was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and Jen really over-delivers on the leadership advice here. She focused a lot on how climbing the corporate ladder is not always a recipe for success in corporate America, and how Levi's weathered the storm of COVID-19, as well as the keys to establishing an authentic company culture. Here, without further ado, is Jen Say in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO, Paul Dyer. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor. I am joined here today by Jen Say, Global Brand President at Levi's. Jen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So Jen, I wanted to start out, if it's all right, by talking about career progression for a minute, because you said to me something that stuck. You said you have to think about career growth less like a ladder and more like a jungle gym, which sort of implies cutting yourself some slack for, you know, moving around, bouncing back and forth and things like that. But you also are somebody who has been named athlete of the year by the U.S. Olympic Committee. You have appeared on Good Morning America in support of the best-selling book you authored. You've been on Forbes list of top CMOs and you've spearheaded a growth trajectory for Levi's that delivered the brand's first multi-year period of growth in two decades. So, your career sounds more like a rocket ship and less like a jungle gym. So what say you to that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't want to take credit for that quote. Jim Stengel said it to me, um, who I'm sure you know him, B&G, uh, et cetera. Um, I was sort of describing that we shouldn't get obsessed with sort of forward or upward momentum or a particular job that comes next, but we should, you know, or at least I have, focused on always finding work that's interesting to me, that's fun, that expands my knowledge base. Um, sometimes it's maybe a little scary because I don't know how to do it. Um, when I've become sort of too focused and too obsessed on just that kind of climbing the ladder, I have 
gotten stuck, frankly. Um, and when I've said, oh, wait, I'm going to go try that thing over there, and maybe it's a lateral move, um, I've expanded my capability and my, my knowledge base. And I, I can give you sort of two examples. One's just at, at work, and I've been at Levi's for 22 years. And for a very long time, I was the U.S. marketing director or for a somewhat long time, and I was obsessed with just getting to be the VP of marketing. Um, and it just wasn't happening for a variety of reasons. You know, I wasn't seen as suitable for the role. Um, and I just was like blooding myself trying to get that job. And it just wasn't going to happen. And at one point, someone offered me a job in another group in strategy, and I didn't have the typical sort of profile for that role. I hadn't gone to business school. I didn't work at a consulting firm. And so I felt like it was really outside of my purview, but I was like, okay, well, it's not working over here. So I might as well go try that. And it was absolutely a lateral and I, it was sort of terrifying, but I did figure it out and I learned a ton. And at that point, cause I'd broadened my capability, I did kind of go up much faster. So sort of the rocket ship thing. But another example I would use is you know, when I was younger, before I sort of started a corporate and professional career, I really wanted to be a writer and a filmmaker. I didn't want to be in this world. And it was tough, right? It was 1992. I was just out of college. It was a recession. I took a job. I was sort of disappointed in myself because I wanted to do those other things. But ultimately, I did write a book and I did make a film, Athlete Day. Um, and so I took this very roundabout way of getting there, but I ultimately was able to do the things that I'd hoped to do from the very beginning, just with a more unconventional path. Well, it's very inspiring. The, the other thing that we maybe could dive a little deeper into, though, is you know your business success with Levi's um, as CMO and now global brand president. Um and taking a, you know, a heritage brand that everybody knows and maybe even has an opinion about to begin with, right? And, and turning it into a growth brand. So, so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, you know, it's not a secret that we had a, a difficult run for a while. You know, we hit our peak around 97, 98. That was the biggest um, in terms of revenue that we have been. And, and we haven't quite gotten back there yet, but I think we're on the road. Um, and we just, I think I would say lost touch with the consumer. We lost touch with the marketplace dynamics. We got a little um, lazy, is that the right word? Or sort of overconfident, I would say. And we failed to evolve, you know? And it was a good 10 years that we really sort of failed to address the, the changing marketplace. And I think rested on our laurels a bit too much. Um, and then, you know, a fire was lit, you know, it was Chip Berg, our CEO, started, I think, around 2011. And, you know, we were certainly a, a heritage brand, a heritage company in danger of not making it if we didn't get really serious about focusing on the consumer, figuring out what was our sort of unique advantage in the marketplace, getting really clear about who we are and what makes us appealing. Um, and we are sort of a love brand, you know, even at our worst and our toughest times, there are just these people that are such fans of the brand, and I would include myself in that since I was a young child. And so we needed to just sort of stop worrying about not being cool or being too old, and we needed to be ourselves. I mean, it's advice you would give your child in a sense, you know? Um, and when we could do that and really tap into the heart of who we are, um, which the folks that loved us already knew, but sort of expand that idea to more people around the world, 
um, and apply it to both our products as well as our communication, we did start to start to see first slow growth and then it picked up speed as we as we built momentum. Um, but it really was a partnership between product and you know our head of design um, and communication because those two things have to work in perfect unison. Mm-hmm. You've also talked a lot about um, you know being a company with values and values led leadership. And how when consumers share your values, you can build these lifelong connections and the role that that plays in the way they feel about a brand like Levi's. So I'm wondering, can you talk about maybe how those values have influenced or even defined the way you've shaped this new relationship or rejuvenated relationship you have with consumers? Sure. Um, You know, I think we've always been a company that's operated with the motto of profits through principles. So we have always tried to do the right thing, first for our employees, um, then for sort of those in our universe, you know, supply chain workers, et cetera. Um, and, and then for our fans, it's sort of concentric circles. Um, we have not always succeeded, you know, no, no person, no business is perfect, but that is the aspiration. Um, and I think there's some fairly remarkable moments in our history that demonstrate that the integration of factories in the South before the law required it. In 1992, we were the first Fortune 500 company to offer same-sex partner benefits. So these are actions, you know, that real actions that affect the lives of our employees. Um, These aren't ad campaigns, you know, so I think it's a real demonstration of, of living our values and trying to kind of take care of the people um, that that work in the company. And that kind of expands out um, to those we work with um, and and to our fans. And I think up until very recently, we didn't talk about these things very much. And I I don't think it was, it wasn't sort of the standard that brands would would talk about um, their actions or their values. But recently, we did start to kind of lean into that um, much more. And I think there's just a demand, frankly, from millennials as well as younger consumers, Gen Z, to know what you stand for and to know what you care about and to know what you're doing to take care of of your employees and of the people in in your universe. And so, you know, people have a choice as to where they can spend their money um, and they vote for brands oftentimes, at least younger consumers that share their values. So we started to talk about um, these things a bit more and we tend to center um, the things that we talk about and and the actions that we take around equality and sustainability. And sustainability is, you know, how we make our product and how we attempt to make a product that, you know, has much less of an adverse impact on the planet. And then equality has very much to do with how we treat our employees, um, an inclusive culture, uh, but also equality that we want to see in the world. Um, And, you know, I would just add third is civic engagement, which I think is very much linked to equality, has been something that we've been very vocal on, voting, um, census participation, these these kinds of things. And and we have started to communicate that publicly and not just have it be sort of things that we quietly do um, through our actions and and our policies. I mean, it's what an amazing heritage to be able to rely on the you know, integration of factories decades ago and you know being the first fortune 500 to offer same-sex couples um, benefits you know that's i mean it's a strong heritage to be able to rely on yet big change like that talking about these actions can sometimes be tough you know in, inside a company so I'm, I'm curious you know what was that process like internally was it something where everybody just knew you know look to the new consumer wants us to talk about these things and it was sort of an obvious you know decision or was it something you guys had to really sort of wrestle with 
Well, we talk about it every time. And of course we need to, um, you know, also be able to, of course, market our products in a really meaningful way. And, you know, we talked about sort of that growth trajectory and the early phases of getting that growth going. We were very much focused on product and product relevance because the number one problem and challenge that we had was people sort of loved the idea of the brand, but they didn't think we made things that were right for them. So we were very focused on communicating and strongly signaling that we have products that are going to make you look and feel great. As we started to establish that, we sort of ratcheted it up so to speak. And we started to talk a bit more about our values. And I think the first sort of poignant moment from a brand communication standpoint, because of course there's the separate piece that's corporate PR and corporate communications. But from a brand communication standpoint, in 2017, we ran an ad called Circles. And it sort of kind of came to me, you know, it was right after the election in 2016 and the country just felt so divided. And of course it still does in a sense. And I felt you know, we just have this obligation or we're, this, we're in this very special and unique position as Levi's that we connect people around the world from all walks of life, you know, minivan moms and farmers and hip hop kids and skaters and all of these people all around the world love Levi's and wear them in their own way. And to me, it was just so analogous. And it was such a reminder of this idea that we're connected by our difference. And I felt like a very positive and optimistic reminder of that was something that only we could do and that people would find quite uplifting. And so it was such, such a successful effort that we started to kind of move in that direction a bit more with, with some of our campaigns, not, not all of them. And of course you won a can lion for that campaign, right? For the circles campaign. We did. Yes. And so this, this opens a whole different direction for, for us that we're, you know, I feel like in the agency world, you know, we, we hand ring a lot about, uh, the future of marketing services and, you know, the changing nature of advertising versus communications and all those kinds of things. Um, and there is a lot of discussion about advertising playing a different role or a lesser role, even in marketing moving forward and more of an earned approach to creative and things like that. Um, you're somebody who's always been very successful in both, you know, purpose-led programming and advertising. So I'm curious, you know, where, what are your thoughts on this sort of the evolution of um, advertising and Marcoms? I mean, you know, I'm not going to speak for, you know, smaller brands with smaller budgets and smaller reach, but I think for a very large brand like us with such huge reach in more than 110 countries, the traditional advertising is very effective still. That said, we have to complement it with earned um, PR, earned what, you know, activations or events. I mean, we don't do much of that lately, but um, we do digital versions and those also generate PR and social engagement, influencer marketing, all of this, it, it has to be combined. I mean, the world is so much more complex from a marketing standpoint than it was when I started, where you just sort of made a few ads and hit go and hope for the best, right? Um, and then you did an assessment a few months in. Now you're getting real-time feedback through social media every single day. You're adjusting as you go. Um, you know, it's not one social media platform, it's 10. You've got to be on all of them and you got to adjust your message depending on the audience. So, you know, I think it's all of it. It's, it's an and, not an or. And we do see very high ROIs from traditional advertising too, um, still. But even traditional advertising looks different. You know, we talk about TV, but it could be a video on demand or it could be a YouTube takeover um, or a social media takeover. And so, you know, we need to think differently about how we use 
even traditional assets. We have several agency partners, both, both PR, digital marketing, traditional advertising, and we have our own robust creative services team internally because it's difficult to meet all the demands creatively that, that we have and to be as agile as you need to be. So we find that an internal group um, is incredible at servicing um, the constant demand and for content and the need for agility. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great reminder, and in particular, a brand at Levi's scale that, you know, of course, you have so many stakeholders that you need to reach in all the different ways that you can. Um, you, you mentioned uh, events obviously haven't been so popular in the last 12 months. <laughs> not really. Uh, yeah, not, not, not a great time for events. Um, you know, obviously, 2020 and, and all of the surrounding, you know, um, adjacencies to that have been a very difficult time for everybody. Um, but, you know, you as a business leader with, you know, direct reports and people who look to you for leadership, you know, throughout the company and your supply chain and your agencies and how has your leadership um, style or ability been affected during this time? And are there any major sort of lessons learned? Yeah, I mean, I think the main one is to just really sort of lead with authenticity, which is such an overused word. I hate to even use it, but I don't know what other one to use. Um, And empathy. I mean, this is all really hard. Um, You know, I've been home for well over a year. You know, I haven't been in the office um, for the first part of that home with four kids, which, you know, is challenging in and of itself. Um, Now they're not home with me, but... um, you know, it's lonely. It's not the same looking through a screen all day at people. And I think to really sort of check in on people, um, to cut people slack, you know, they're dealing with a lot. I think to share maybe when you're having a tough day, because that gives permission. Um, And, you know, I I think this sort of idea of a leader that kind of always has it all together, and that is sort of you know, commanding from up high, it just can't work in this situation. I don't know that it ever truly worked, but I think, I mean, that would be the main thing is just sort of really leading with empathy, encouraging folks to take care of themselves, telling them to take a break in the middle of the day. You could go all day like this, you know, zooming away. And it really does get to you over time, um, being flexible with people, um, yeah, I think, you know, that would that would be it. And I would say that was kind of my style before, but it's just intensified now. So you, you used the A word, authenticity. I know, it's so and... overused. <laughs> Such a cliche. It's a good word, though. I mean, it is a good word, but it's something that, you know, I've always struggled with also when you see, um, you know, people holding like authenticity workshops, you know. Yeah, like, that seems... Like, it doesn't seem like it's possible to teach someone to be authentic. It, it's inauthentic. It sounds very inauthentic, right? Um, but I'm curious when you when you think through that lens for, for the brand now. So that's you know for your you as a leader, and it came across as being very authentic. Um, you know, but when you think through the the lens of the brand and telling an authentic story and um, you know, trying to connect with so many different audiences. You mentioned, you know, like just off the top of your head there, skaters and moms and you know, everybody in between. And, you know, how is it that a brand can manage to be authentic to so many different people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think you have to sort of, it comes back to that point I was making about the Circles campaign and that we're all sort of connected in our difference. And there are some core values that we share, whether we're young or old, 
you know, gay or straight, black or white, um, from America or another country, there are certain core values, I think, that, that we share. And so we seek to find that highest common denominator, you know, that, that can unite people. And it's interesting because when we listen to what folks tell us about what they love about the brand, I mean, I didn't make it up, right? We went out and asked people and we talked to them. And what we heard from the people that are really fans, you know, lifelong fans of Levi's is that they feel like their best and most authentic selves when they wear Levi's. So there's that word again. Um, and not authentic in the sense that they're sort of at home on the couch, you know, watching Netflix and eating Cheetos, which I like to do also, but authentic in the sense, the best version, like the one that is ready to go out into the world and, you know, kick butt and take names. They feel confident and they feel like they can be themselves, not like they're putting on a shield of armor to be somebody else. Um, and we hear that consistently around the world, whether it's sort of boomers who've been wearing 501s their whole life or, you know, a much younger kid who may like our loose jeans, for instance, which is kind of the newer, more trendy fit. And, and so kind of focusing on that value um, of authenticity and self-expression, you know, expression of who you are authentically, which hopefully you don't need a workshop to, to determine, um, is uniting. And it allows you then to kind of tilt that in various directions, depending on who you're talking to, right? Um, whether it's a loyal consumer that you, you know, has worn Levi's their whole life, or whether it's someone new, it's a, it's a shared value in a sense. And we hear it from Shanghai to Chicago, honestly, um, what that might look like or present like in terms of how they wear it and what they do could be very different, but that internal value is the same and it's shared. It's interesting you mentioned um, that point, though, about sort of cultivating authenticity. I spoke recently to a business school class at NYU, and one of the questions was around um, how do you build your personal brand, which I know is a very popular question. And it's sort of confounding to me. Like, I don't think about that. <laughs> I just try to be the best person I can be that will make myself proud, um, that I'll you know, be able to sleep at night with what I've done and how I've treated people. So I'm not sort of much concerned about what my brand is, but if I am true to myself, um, then I suppose I will have one, you know, as a human. But I think the best thing is not to focus on the output, but the internal piece of it. That's my authenticity workshop there in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense and it's, you know, I think it's setting a great example for the people in your organization, obviously. And one of the the discussions that's really come to the forefront in the wake of George Floyd and, you know, the last year has been enabling or empowering people to bring their whole true self to work. Right. And it sounds like you're really modeling that for, for your team, you know, at Levi's. I, I try to, um, and I, I think that's really, really true. And I am um, the executive sponsor of our black ERG. And we talk about this a lot. And, you know, from day one, when we formed this, um, employee resource group, you know, we set clear goals for ourselves. And, you know, there were very sort of quantitative goals around representation within the company, you know, throughout all levels, but also at the leadership level. But then there was this sort of softer goal around belonging and engagement, you know, and everyone feeling that they could be themselves. And if something was really sort of weighing on them, they could bring that to work and they could talk with their colleagues. Um, and I think oftentimes members of you know, our black employee community did not feel that way before. Um, you know, there were sort of terrible ha things happening, you know, before George Floyd, as we know, and that weighed heavily. And it didn't 
weigh as heavily on the white community. And so you had this divide. And so we really have tried to create this sort of community and, and also sort of education of those other folks, perhaps outside of that group. And that accounts for, you know, all minority groups. Women often feel that way as well, certainly. Um, certainly, you know, the Asian community of late is, is, is suffering all sorts of stress from the violence we've seen against uh, the Asian community. And that's in San Francisco, a lot of it, which is where we are. And so how do you create this um, environment where people can communicate how they are feeling, can bring their whole selves to work? And I, 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 I don't suppose that sort of modeling that was kind of first and foremost on my mind. It was more just a realization that I'm better when I'm myself. So perhaps it was selfish, <laughs> you know? Um, but as I moved up, I did also realize sort of very overtly that as a leader, if you behave that way, you can invite that from your team as well. But it started as more of a personal almost requirement. You know, when we divide ourselves into pieces, we don't bring our best selves to anything. Um, and I realized that. I don't know, probably too late, but um, I did realize it at some point. Well, that's a great theme. You know, you talked about what unifies um, all people, but then also just unifying yourself, you know, and, and bringing a unified version of yourself to everything you do. Yeah. And I, I mean, there was a very specific moment in, in my career when I kind of learned that lesson. And it was when my book came out, which you referenced my book called Chalked Up, which is about the abuse um, and the cruel culture, quite frankly, in gymnastics and the Olympic movement more broadly. And I, I didn't mean to kind of light a fire here. I just was sort of telling my story. Um, but I didn't tell anyone at work that the book was coming out. This was back in 2008. And I was, I am a woman, but I was a sort of younger mom. I had two small children. And I, you know, I felt as I think women often did, I didn't want anyone to assume that I wasn't committed to the workplace. You know, I didn't want to be passed over for a promotion. I didn't want anyone to say, oh, well, she really wants to go write books. So let's not consider Jen. So I didn't tell anybody that this book was coming out. I mean, first of all, I didn't expect to get it published. Then I did. And I didn't expect it to get the kind of publicity it did. And as you mentioned, I was on like morning shows and stuff. So at that point, you can't really keep it a secret, right? <laughs> um, but it actually had the exact opposite impact that I thought it would have, which was people saw me as creative and authentic and um, outspoken and really as more of a leader. And so it was kind of at that moment that I was like, okay, well, the cat's out of the bag. I might as well just, you know, put the pictures back up on my desk and my kids and, you know, talk about my life and, and be my whole self at work. And I, I do think it was a, it was a real inflection point in, in my life and in my professional life. And I became much happier, I think is the most important thing. <laughs> So, all right. So we're talking about being your whole self. We're talking about your, your four kids, you know, and now these side hustles that are like the side hustle to end all side hustles, writing a book, producing a documentary while, by the way, having this huge high powered job is work-life balance a thing in your house. I mean, what, what is that? You know what I mean? Like what, where does that, how does that fit into this equation at, at some point? Um, I think we're all struggling with that right now a little bit, honestly. I know I am, um, you know, because you kind of the days like blur into each other, you know, when you don't have this finite kind of period that you go to the office and you come home. And technology, frankly, had started to blur that anyway. And then being in a global job where, you know, I have accountability for Asia and that starts at 5 p.m. And I have accountability for Europe, which starts in the middle of my night. So that's a challenge. But I will tell you, I have a, a, a belief about this one, which is, 
I strive for balance over time, not in any one given moment. Um, you know, there are times when I was writing my book that I had no balance. You know, I had two small children. I was getting up really early and staying up very late to get it done, but I, I needed to do it. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of balance in that moment, but then afterwards I did, you know, I took it a little easier. And so I think it, and there are times when your children are very young that perhaps you take your foot off the gas at work a little bit and you commit more to them. And I definitely did that too. And so I just, I strive for balance over time, not all at once in the moment, if that makes sense. Cause I don't think it's really possible. And I think you'll just end up being mad at yourself that you're not achieving it. And that just makes it worse. I think it, it makes complete sense. And it fits with your theme of the jungle gym instead of the ladder, you know, and uh, we talk at Lippy Taylor about ebbing and flowing, you know, um, yeah, that's the right language. Yeah. So um, another thing, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, being being a woman, you know, in, in a leadership position and how, um, you know, in various sectors, that's still rare. Um, and, uh, you know, mentorship is oftentimes something that comes up as, you know, important to helping women get ahead in their careers. Um, but I think the first question I usually hear is, I don't know how to find a mentor. I don't know what to ask of them. I don't know, you know, it's like, how do I get started on that path to having a great mentor? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, I want to say, because I feel like there's this myth that exists, or at least I haven't experienced it, that women don't support other women in, you know, in the workplace. You hear that a lot. And I have not experienced that, frankly. And, um, you know, one of the first mentors I ever had at Levi's, she reached out to me. um, And, you know, she's probably 15 years older than me-ish, maybe 10. She'd been at the company a long time already. She had observed that I'd not gotten a promotion that I wanted and figured I must have been fairly devastated. Um, and she reached out and she said, you know, don't be discouraged. Um, you know, she just encouraged me. And and that was the start of a friendship. I just talked to her today, actually. Um, so my my point about, and it ended up, as, as definitely a friendship and a mentorship. And so I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of those sort of corporate matched mentor programs. Like, I think you have to kind of find your person. And I was really lucky that she found me. I think it's hard to reach out. And so I was lucky and grateful that she did. I didn't know that's what I needed, you know, but she saw it and she helped. And so I try to do that, um, you know, for others um, in the, in the company. And there are quite a few sort of younger women in the company that I have close relationships with that I try to mentor and encourage and sometimes tell them some hard truths. Um, cause I think that's part of it too. Um, but I think it's important you find someone that you connect with personally, and that it's not just sort of an assigned match, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean, but it's important to use that time. Uh, you know, it's not just FaceTime with someone more senior than you ask questions, ask about their path. Um, you know, ask them about things you're challenged with, tell them when you're disappointed, (laughs) tell them when you're excited about something and you'll have a natural organic conversation and a friendship ultimately that, that, that evolves. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've been lucky to have a few in my life that kind of evolve naturally. And I try to extend that to others. Well, that's uh, I'm sure they're very lucky and very grateful for you to be spending your time with them as I know our listeners will be as well for having had the benefit of your insights here today. So Jen, thank you so much for taking this time with us and sharing all of your insights and advice. Um, And I know that people are going to be really thrilled to hear everything you had to share. Thank you for having me. It was nice talking to you. 
All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Jen Say. Number one, focus on expansion over upward progression. This is a great piece of career advice. In addition to her executive position at a Fortune 500 brand, Jen is a former elite athlete, a published author, and a successful documentary producer. She's had accomplishments in many disparate arenas, and each experience seems to have compounded to develop her professionally in ways that serve just about everything that she does. This may run counter to the jack-of-all-trades debate, but Jen makes it work beautifully. When Jen found herself overly focused on climbing the corporate ladder, she frequently felt stuck. What Jen found to be a much more effective and enjoyable strategy for her career progression was to focus on experiences and projects that would expand her skill sets and knowledge base. Doing so made her a much more well-rounded professional with the ability to pivot, adapt, and learn new skills, all of which served her tremendously as a leader. Number two, bring a unified version of yourself to everything that you do. When publishing her first book, Jen's initial instinct was to be silent about it, out of concern it could make her seem less dedicated to her corporate work. As her book's popularity blew up and she began doing a robust amount of media interviews, ultimately she could no longer hide it. What ended up happening, though, when people found out was the opposite effect. Her new accomplishment was extremely impressive to many people and made her more synonymous with being outspoken, creative, and downright more interesting, all of which ultimately helped her career. So if you're accomplishing a lot with your side hustles, don't hide them because they may just help feed your corporate career. Number three, creating an environment for true selves is the key to authenticity, and it starts at the top. Leaders who are forthright about their own feelings give others permission to do the same. This has never been more important than now, where a lot of managers and executives are relinquishing the notion of a flawed and unfeeling leader as an outdated archetype. Instead, today's leaders are feeling free to be honest and vulnerable around their staff, which gives them license to do the same. This is what truly allows corporate atmospheres to blossom into authentic communities. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.